on Wednesday nights, and we've been in the Old Testament quite a bit. Um, of course, the whole Bible, and as we've seen going through Daniel, is all about Jesus. But I thought, you know, it's time that we went to one of the Gospels, because they are just a picture of Jesus, the stories about Jesus personally. The whole Bible is that way in sort of an oblique way, but when you get to the Gospels, it's just the simple story of Jesus. Of course, there are four Gospels. We, a few years ago, went through Matthew, which was written by Matthew, Jesus' disciple, and it was addressed to a Jewish audience, and it emphasized the um, fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And a couple years later, we went through the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples who wanted to just drive home the point that Jesus was God, and so he made that point. Gospel of Luke, which we haven't been through yet, was written by a historian who traveled with Paul, and he was kind of telling the story from a detailed historical standpoint. He was a doctor, so he also got a lot of medical details. Well, Mark was written by a guy, John Mark, who we know quite a bit about from the scriptures. He was younger than the other disciples, and he, well, actually, the gospel of Mark is, I think, the gospel written to those with ADD. Um, it's the shortest it's the shortest gospel, and Mark, when you study his life, this guy had a serious attention deficit for sure, couldn't seem to settle down on one thing. His, his mom was a, a godly woman. You remember when Peter was in prison and he got out of prison, the angel let him out, went to Mark's mom's house, and so Peter was close friends with his family. Some people believe that, that Mark was actually Peter's son. Um, Probably not, but Peter over in 1 Peter 5 calls him my son Mark, probably because he had led him to the Lord and, and they were close. But Mark went with Paul on his first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, but he couldn't stick with them. He ends up bailing out, leaving early, so Paul was bugged at him, didn't want to let him go again. He was Barnabas's nephew, so Barnabas ended up taking him. He also traveled with Peter a lot. He went to Rome. He it, towards the end of his life, he went to Egypt and started the church there in Alexandria and did a lot of missions work. But Mark is just a guy who bounced around a lot. And the way he tells the story is like snapshots. It's like looking at somebody's photo album and he tells you the story. He bounces from one subject to another. He gets right to the bottom line of what it's about. So if you have ADD, you'll enjoy his treatment of the life of Jesus. He reminds me of, I, I know a guy, a friend of mine, Steve Wilburn. He's a pastor at Greg Laurie's church. And we were hanging out this week a little bit, went for a motorcycle ride. And, and Steve is, is the most attention deficit guy I've ever seen. He's just hyper. He talks 100 miles an hour. When he tells you, we were sitting at lunch and he was telling me about being in Philadelphia doing outreaches to get ready for the Harvest Crusade that's going to be an outreach. And, and he was telling Greg and I about it and he was just going, man, the people are so open there. I mean, I go, I had all these people and they gather around and all, we're at this park and all of a sudden, dude, it's about done. We're ready to go. But these four people come up and, they, and I go, hey, you want to know about Jesus? And I tell them about Jesus. They all accepted the Lord right then. And, they, and he's just... 
whoa, hang on a little bit, Steve. And then he, and then he goes, I, go, I, I made the mistake of asking the question, so when you were in Philly, did you get a cheesesteak? He goes, oh, dude, you know, the cheesesteaks, there's, there's these two restaurants across from each other, and some people say this one, some people say that one, but you know where the best cheesesteak sandwich is? It's in Ikea, dude. He goes, and so he said, I heard that. I go into Ikea. I go, listen, dude, I know that I heard that you make the best cheesesteak sandwich ever. I want you to make me the best. And they made me the, and that's just, sometime I'm going to have him come and speak here because <laughs> I am not exaggerating at all. That's Steve Weber and that's his whole life is like that. But that's kind of how Mark is. And he, you'll see him constantly use this term immediately. I think it comes up eight or nine times in the first chapter alone. Just like, immediately, then. You know what happened then? You know what happened then? And things that some of the other Gospels take a whole chapter to talk about, he boils it down into a verse or two, and then he jumps to something else. So if you like that style, you'll love Mark. And we're just going to present it as it is. But remember, ultimately, what this Gospel is about is showing us Jesus, You know, after all, being a Christian is to be like him, to follow Jesus Christ. And so we need to learn about him so that we can figure out what that even looks like. Ultimately, God's plan for our life is to mold and shape us so that we are more like Jesus. So when we look at the Gospels, we will see the direction that God is taking us as he is wanting to make us more and more like him. And so... It's a quick roller coaster ride, definitely, like I say, shortest gospel by far. Um, Mark actually shows up as a character most likely in the gospel because towards the end when Jesus was going to, to trial and everyone had bailed, Mark tells a story about this one young kid who was tagging along and watching and a bunch of guys tried to grab him and, and he ends up slipping out of his clothes and running off naked. And most people believe that Mark was talking about himself. He, you know, who else would know the details of something like that? But he was probably a kid that grew up and knew about Jesus. And then he became close to Peter as his older mentor. And Peter was too hyper to write a gospel himself. So he goes, I'll tell you the stories and you write them down. That's probably kind of how this gospel came about. But he starts off and says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No big discussion about, there's no nativity scene and angels coming, and he kind of skips all of that. In fact, he really doesn't say much about Mary, which makes the Catholics not crazy about the gospel of Mark. It's not one of their favorites, seriously, because they give such a prominent position to her. She pops up in like the fourth chapter when she and her other sons come with her and they say, hey, tell Jesus his mother and his brothers are out here. And Jesus goes, who's my mother or my brothers? Kind of gives her the stiff arm. And, and then at the end, even when Jesus is on the cross, Mary is there, but it doesn't call her Mary the mother of Jesus. It calls her Mary the mother of James or Mary the mother of Joseph not mentioning, because to Mark, it's like he goes, look, it's about Jesus. Nobody else shares the spotlight here. Oh, there are plenty of other characters who are involved, but he just wants to stick with the Jesus stuff. And so he just goes, look, I'll cut to the chase. He's the son of God. Matthew traces 
Jesus' legal lineage through his stepfather Joseph all the way back to show that he has the right to reign as a, from the family of David. Then Luke traces his heritage because Luke emphasizes Jesus as a man and so traces through Mary biologically all the way back to Adam. And, you know, John says he was God from the beginning and Mark just goes, look, he's just the son of God, okay? And this was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he does go into a quote from Malachi chapter 3, as you see in verses 2 and 3, as it's written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he goes back to this prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament that told about a guy who would come and introduce the Lord to people. And that guy was John the Baptist. And so Mark was fascinated by the fact that the Old Testament told about the guy who came personally, John the Baptist, and introduced Jesus to people. And so it wasn't like a testimony of all these prophecies that he fulfilled, which is, can be kind of nebulous, but he's saying, look, the Old Testament said this guy is going to come, and that guy was John the Baptist. He actually came, and he says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John came and told people you need to turn around and, and stop living the way you're living, and all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And then he says, to give you a picture of John the Baptist, he was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Just in one verse there, he takes a snapshot and goes, check this guy out. This is the guy that the Old Testament was talking about. And... When he preached, verse 7, he said, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he said, Malachi said, This guy is going to come and prepare the way of the Lord and introduce him. Here's what he looked like goat's hair, the belt, the eaten locusts. And his message was, I am only coming to introduce you to someone who is coming after me. And when you meet him, you, tell, you think, I'm something. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And Jesus came along, and then we have this quick summary of his baptism. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the next picture we have is our character John the Baptist who had been prophesied concerning. He was saying that, that the Lord's coming. And then he goes, Here he is. He baptized him, and when it happened, you had Jesus there in person getting baptized. You had heaven open, the Holy Spirit coming like a dove 
on him. And remember, John had already said, when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then you have the voice of the Father. So you have the whole Trinity involved here. He doesn't explain it. He just observes it. The Father is saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So in just a few verses here, he takes us all the way to the point where Jesus is about ready to start his ministry. Nothing about him as a kid, nothing about his background or anything else. But the point that Mark wants to make is that Jesus came, the Holy Spirit was upon him. God was in him in a way unprecedented, but it wasn't just for him. He was the one who would come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who would want to come and commission others to bear God, the Holy Spirit, within them, to allow God's power to flow through them. This is huge. This is something that the Old Testament would know nothing about, this idea that he would come for us, that he would come bringing with him the Holy Spirit who could empower us to do the work that he wanted to accomplish. And so there he was, he was baptized. Now, before, you know, he can hardly enjoy his baptism, immediately, verse 12, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him in two verses describing the whole temptation of Christ. Not saying exactly where he was, not talking about the three different offers that Satan made to him, not talking about how Jesus responded with Scripture, no details at all. He goes, but I want you to understand, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, boom. Then, next thing you know, he fought a battle, a 40-day battle of temptation and testing. But you know, what else? I, you know, often our image of Jesus being tempted is that he was walking along in Galilee and Satan jumps out from an alley and puts a bag over his head and drags him off to the wilderness and is torturing him and tempting him. But look at Mark's perspective. He said, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And then the angels visited him after this temptation. See, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it opens the door to God doing some amazing things. But one of the first things that the Spirit will do is lead you into those times of testing, those times of difficulties. Why? Every good, strong relationship has to involve that period of testing, that time of difficulty. Because strong relationships are built by fighting together against temptation as Jesus battled with the angels helping him against the enemy. And so right away, the walk of the Spirit isn't that the Holy Spirit came upon him and then he just started floating through the sky with daisies and tulips. And No, it's like the Spirit goes, okay, you have a job to do. Let's take it and put it to the test. Let's go and face that which is difficult. Think about the good friendships that you have. When you meet someone for the first time and you think, I'd like to be friends with this person, you don't really have a friendship until it's tested. Ultimately, temptation will come to your friendship. And 
Times will come where you're at odds with each other, and this is a difficult time. And if you're going to have a real friendship that's going to last, that friendship will endure the temptation, will take you through that, and then as the angels minister to you and as you recover from the struggles, then you realize, wow, now I really have a friend because our friendship has been tested. It's the same way with a romance. You know, when you have a husband and a wife, or you have two people of the opposite sex who meet each other, and they're interested, and they start thinking, wow, maybe this is a person that I would want to spend the rest of my life with. You, you fall in love, and you hear the bells, and it's just so wonderfully romantic, and then you, you get married. If you make it that far, <laughs> a lot of people can't make it past the engagement. Because temptation trials come up and it's like, oh no, this is the wrong person. Most people, though, can kind of make it through the engagement and you think, and we tell people, oh, don't worry, engagement's the hard part. Then it gets much easier. <laughs> you know, sure, misery loves company. But <laughs> no, the truth is, if you're going to have a relationship that's worth anything, you're going to face trials and temptations, testings in the wilderness like you can't believe where you will need the presence of the Holy Spirit to help you to make it through. But ultimately, it's battling through those tests that makes your relationship what it really can be. I, you know, I used to spend a lot of time in premarital counseling trying to warn people about that kind of stuff. You know, and, and, but I realized they're not listening you know, you, go, you talk to a couple who's so in love, and I go, well, so tell me about your last fight. And they go, well, we really haven't fought. Oh, boy. I feel like going, let me marry you right now. <laughs> but ultimately, I know what anyone with any common sense in life knows, that for a strong relationship maritally to happen there are going to be a lot of tests. And there's not going to be, it's not that there's something wrong because you go through a test. The test of the relationship is what the Spirit does in your life to strengthen the bond between you because as you face difficulty, you have to decide, are we going to do this together? Are we going to be drawn together? Or are we going to let a wedge go between us? And it's true with friendships. It's true with a marriage that the Spirit leads you to these times of testing. You ought to expect it. It's also true, by the way, with a church. I, I get a kick out of meeting people who are here for the first time because so often they're, I mean, I, and I hear at the door people go, you know, this is our first time here. I've heard you on the radio. This is exactly what I'm looking for as a church. It's just, I can't believe it. I've never sensed this or felt it. I'm, you can count on it. I'm going to be here the rest of my life. I'm gonna, I want my grandkids to grow up here. This is all I just love. And I don't take it. I, I, I'm flattered, but I realize, you know, give them a few weeks. And <laughs> certainly the tests will come, the difficulties will come, and they'll start to wonder. <laughs> I remember one guy who came, the first week he was at our church, he came up and he goes, Man, your teaching's incredible. This is just what I need. And I just want you to know, I'm here for you. I want to get involved. I'll do anything I can do to help. I love you. This is great. I, you know, count on it. And then the next week, I quit the church because his junior high daughter said that the junior high room smelled funny. And that was before the bus. 
But that's how it works. I mean, a lot of times, what, what, when does a church really become your church? It's when you battle through the trials and the difficulties and the struggles and you realize, yeah, there are some things about this place that I don't like, but now we've stood the test of time. And now it becomes a place where, yeah, this really is the place where I want to fellowship. And then there is a close bond. Some people never do form that. They go to a church until something offends them, and then they go to another church until something offends them, and they go to another one until something offends them. But ultimately, like every healthy relationship, it's built on testing. And so we see Mark right away goes, Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on him, the voice of the Father, this dove, and boom, the Spirit goes, okay, now let's put it to the test. Let's make this happen. And so he gives us that little snapshot without a bunch of details about it at all. Now he talks about Jesus going out and preaching. Jesus was, John was put in prison, so Jesus started to preach. Now some of the Gospels record really long sermons that Jesus preached. Mark kind of boils it down. He goes, yeah, he was preaching and he basically said this, one sentence, or two sentences, one verse. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He goes, basically, Jesus said a bunch of stuff, but what it boiled down to is, look, now is the time of salvation. Everything that people have been waiting for, it's here, it's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not that, you know, they were looking for the kingdom they were looking for that time that God promised, and as we know, it will one day come in fullness to the children of Israel. But Jesus was telling them, don't get your eyes all focused on the future, the millennial kingdom, the lion laying down with the lamb and all that. You need to realize I'm here, and really the best thing about the kingdom is me. And so I am here with you. Now what you are to do is to repent. What you are to do is to change. That's what I want to do. I want to give you the strength to do that. I want to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life so that can happen. So basically a simple message that, you know, he could have given a really long version of it, but he gave the Cliff Notes version, save you a little time. There's his message. Now the next few verses he calls four of the disciples. Um, later on it'll show him calling some more. The first Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. Four guys, two sets of brothers who were um, fishermen. And so he says he went and called those guys, and look at what he said. He came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, uh, okay, then uh, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, verse 16, casting a net. And Jesus said to them, verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. He went a little further. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So Jesus comes along and sees four fishermen, and he calls them and says, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, a couple of things. When he said, follow me, the idea was, follow me now. Not like, yeah, I'll catch up, you can catch up to me later. When he followed them, they dropped everything and followed. And Mark wanted to make this impression clear that when Jesus says to do something, you need to do it. You need to follow. 
and following is now, you do what he says. But also, he was calling them to be fishers of men. See, what Jesus wanted to do was to reach out and touch people, connect with people. That's what he came for. But he couldn't do that just by himself. He wanted to use others. His idea was if he touches this person and that person reaches out and touches a couple of more people, ultimately everyone will have this opportunity. And so because they were fishermen, he used the metaphor of fishing. But he said, I want to use you guys to touch other people, to reach other people. But also notice he didn't just say presto changeo, now you're a fisher of men. But what he said is, is um, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I'm going to turn you into those who are effective in drawing others to me. So it's not that, you know, automatically you do it. Now, as soon as you become a follower of Jesus, certainly you can begin to tell others. But our lives are a process of really getting better at knowing how to draw other people to him. The more life experiences we have, the more we walk with him, the more we know his word, we certainly become more effective at being fishers of people. And a lot of times what we do is just the opposite. We start out trying to share the Lord with people, and that doesn't go very well, but we forget, we don't realize, no, this is a process of education. We are, he is making us to become fishers of men, doesn't work very well the first couple times, we just give it up. And as we've been with the Lord for a longer period of time, we don't know that many non-Christians, and therefore we're not really sharing our faith that much. But what his desire was always was to turn us into people who become more and more effective at drawing others to him, at being fishers of men. And so in the calling of the disciples, he shows us when he tells you to follow, you need to follow. The agenda is to attract other people to him. The process is something that's going to take some time, but that's his agenda in our lives. That's what he is trying to do. And so they followed him. And then you see in verse 21, the next snapshot, he said, then they went into Capernaum and immediately... On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When they heard Jesus teach, he got up, and they had lots of teachers, lots of rabbis, who would open up the law, who would bring the word of God. And, and they all had strong opinions about different things, but they would also say, well, this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says that, and here there are a lot of options, and try to interpret the word of God. But when Jesus got up there, it was so different because he wrote the stuff. He owned it. He knew it. And when he spoke it, he was able to interpret it in a way that you can take it to the bank. He had authority. And it wasn't just that he acted like he had authority. He really did have authority. And that blew their minds. They had never heard anyone who would do that. Now, there are some people who would take this scripture and teach. And I've heard this a lot at, sometimes from, from people who are training pastors and things like that and in seminaries where they tell you, you know, what amazed the people was the authority. So you need to speak with that kind of authority. 
And you need to be so sure of yourself. And you should never say, well, there are a couple different ways of looking at this passage, and you can pick whichever one you want. They go, no, you need to be certain of yourself. And I've heard, one time I heard a guy who was, preach, who was saying that to some students of ministry, and I, I talked to him afterwards, and I said, so if there's a passage of Scripture, and you are like 51% that it's one way, and 49% of you is that it's the other way, what do you do? And he goes, I take that 51% and I preach it as if it came from God's mouth, that I'm absolutely certain of it because I want people to see the certainty. And I said, well, then what if you read, pray about it a little more and stuff, and you decide it's the other way? Now you believe the other way. He goes, I changed my message, and I'm just as sure of that. Well, that's not what this is teaching. You miss the point if that's what you think. No, it's not that we are supposed to be so certain the only thing we should be certain of is what he has explicitly said because he is the one who has authority. Once I get up and act like I have the authority, people might be impressed. They might be amazed. Problem is, I don't have that authority, and I could be wrong about a lot of things. And so the point here, though, is if you saw Jesus, you'd realize this is the source of all truth. It's what he says it's who he is. It's what he teaches that you can take to the bank, that you can absolutely trust. There's a word called epistemology that refers to how you know what the truth is. And our ultimate epistemology should be, what does Jesus say? Because he is the one with the authority. And so here we see a picture of one who spoke with authority. But then he didn't only speak with authority, he backed it up as we continue to read, says there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out and was saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So demons were kind of confronting Jesus and sort of endorsing him, and Jesus really didn't need a celebrity endorsement from a demon, so he rebuked him and said, shut up and come out of him. Immediately, the unclean spirit convulsed him, cried out with a loud voice, and came out of him. And then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus not only spoke with authority, he acted with authority. When he told the demon to shut up, it had to come out immediately. Now, you look at that and go, wow, that's pretty impressive. Well, yes, it is, but remember, he is someone who was filled with the Spirit in abundance. He was also someone who had already been tested and who had fasted. Later on with Jesus' disciples, they tried to cast demons out of a kid, and they couldn't do it, and Jesus came and did it easily, and they said, okay, what's the secret? What's the trick? He said, this kind doesn't come out except by much prayer and fasting. It was because of who Jesus was, it was because he had passed the test, because he had been through the trial and come out on the other side and lived a life, as we will see, of prayer and fasting, that he had this kind of power, not just the power to speak, but the power to act, the power to make a difference. And as you'd imagine, verse 28, immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So Jesus started getting famous. 
Now, you'd think, hey, you came to save the world. Everybody needs to know about you. Being famous ought to be a good thing. That's going to be great. But as we see, as we go through it a little bit more, Jesus wasn't trying to be famous. Jesus wasn't trying to attract a crowd. But we see that he left there, came out of the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and Peter's mother-in-law was lying there sick with a fever. Now you might go, this is mother-in-law, so what? But his attitude wasn't that. It, it was, oh. And he reached out and touched her, took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. So he wasn't just dealing with the demons out there in public. He sees this woman and has compassion on her because she was sick, and just a touch of him and a word from him, and she was healed right then. But what happens in this snapshot that we see of the healed mother-in-law, as soon as she is healed, she served them. Immediately the fever left her, and she served them. See, when, when the Lord touches us, it doesn't just cause us to go, woohoo! It causes us to go, I want to be a part of this. I want to serve. Well, how do you serve him? You serve him by serving others. He doesn't really need anything except for us to look out for his sheep. That's why, you know, he told Peter later on, after Peter had been tested and failed, Jesus was talking to him walking along by the Sea of Galilee, and he said, Peter, do you love me? I said, yeah. Well, feed my sheep. Well, the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, learned this before Peter did, that Jesus wasn't trying to attract a, a popular following. What he was trying to do is commission people to put them to work, being busy doing what he came to do, and that is to serve. And the theme of the book of Mark is Jesus as a servant. And so we see that when he touches people, they want to serve. And that's an important little picture to note here. Now it says next, at evening, when the sun had set, Jesus punched the time clock and went home. No, it's nighttime. He had had a long day, but they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he didn't let the demons speak because they knew him. He didn't want to hear it. So there he is working late at night, not just only specific hours, but he was willing to give and to work long into the night to do what the Father had told him to do. Now, this is a challenge to us because so often we just think, you know, I'll only do so much and then I'm not going to do any more. Then there are others of us who are workaholics that just want to work all the time. That wasn't Jesus, as we will see. He didn't just feel compelled that, oh, there's so much to do, I've just got to do it. But if God had something for him to do and told him to do it, he wasn't going to let the clock dictate what he was going to do or what he wasn't going to do. He's just healing people. So there he is working late at night. At the end of the day, I'm sure the disciples were worn out from watching. And, you know, it was at their house. And so they went to bed. But when they woke up in the morning, Jesus was gone. 
Because as you see, the next snapshot, and this is really an important one. Now in the morning, verse 35, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So the next snapshot of Jesus, just a very simple one, of him getting up in the morning early and going out and spending time alone with the Father in prayer. Now again, you're amazed that he has the power to do what he's going to do, but then are you willing to pay the price that he paid of getting up early and getting out there alone with the Lord? And we see this throughout the Gospels so often. This is what Jesus did. And he didn't call for a prayer meeting, and he didn't say, okay, disciples, you know, I'm training you. Come on, everybody up. Let's go, hut, 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 let's go pray. No, he just, he let them sleep. He didn't care. Ultimately, they'd start to figure it out. But for him, being alone with God was so important that he got up early. You know, you'd think, well, I don't really have time to spend quality time with the Lord. I haven't had time to read my Bible lately or to pray. Well, get up earlier. Jesus was busy. And yet he just made the time by getting up early. I don't think that anyone getting up early for the purpose of, you know, um, spending time with the Father, you're going to find that, oh man, I'm so exhausted during the day because I got up so early to spend time with the Father. Now, you may be tired during the day, but chances are there are a lot of things that you were doing that you could have done without. I don't believe that spending time with the Lord is something that's going to cause you to just be dozing off in church or, you know, falling asleep during work or whatever. Um, Staying up late to watch the UFC might. But um, praying, no. And it begs the obvious question, as you see this picture of Jesus praying before the sun came up, early getting out there and doing it, and you go, if Jesus needed that, He's the son of God. He had passed the test. He could cast out demons and heal sick people right and left. If he needs to get along with Father, how much more do we, being who we are, need to pray? I don't understand even why he needed to pray. He is God. But he obviously knew something that we don't know, that this was critically important, and it is for us too. If we are to learn to be fishers of men, if we are to become followers of Jesus, if we are going to live Christian lives that cause us to develop into being more like him, then we can't afford to skip over this picture of him there in prayer. Now, finally, later on, Peter and the other guys woke up. And Simon was looking for Jesus. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you, verse 37. But he said to them, let's go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all the Galilee and casting out demons. So the next picture of Jesus is he's been praying, and Peter comes and gives him the results of the latest polls that said, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. And, and you'd think this was good news to Jesus. I mean, he came to save everybody, so 
Good, Jesus, you're getting famous. You're attracting a crowd. And here's what they want you to do. More of what you've been doing already. And Jesus basically, without addressing that specifically, he says, I don't care what everyone wants me to do. I don't care what everyone thinks. I don't care what popular opinion is. And as far as that goes, I don't care what your advice would do to build the size of my ministry. If everyone wants me, I'm going somewhere else. Let's move on. Let's go to a different place. Because I came to do this. What's this? To touch people personally. He didn't come to build a huge following. Jesus could have, from the very beginning, he's healing people, he's teaching with authority. Oh, man, he was so famous, he was so popular, everyone could have gathered around. And if we were advising him, that's what we would suggest. Jesus, why don't you settle down and stay in one place so that the people know where to find you and you will attract a massive audience. But it becomes really clear in Mark's gospel Jesus wasn't into attracting a mass audience. He was interested in going out and reaching individuals. And that's why the people that he called, he called to reach individuals. And so if it started getting too big, he just moved on. And we go on and see he goes out and meets a leper personally. Leprosy was a disease that was highly contagious, and they isolated anyone who had leprosy. The Old Testament had a procedure that you would go through in the temple if you ever were healed of leprosy, but that was never happening. But Jesus sees a leper, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean, and Jesus was moved with compassion. Here you see a picture of Jesus looking at a leper, and he really cares, and he's really touched by this guy's predicament. And he stretched out his hand and touched him. Yeah, I don't care if nobody touches lepers. I'm going to touch him. And he did, and he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Just go your way, show yourself to the priest, get signed off like Moses told you, and then you'll be fine. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. Jesus heals a leper. Hadn't been done. No one had seen it. Now, if I ever healed a leper or a person with AIDS, or a person that had some other horrible disease, first thing I would do is I'd go, here, here's my business card, tell everybody you know. <laughs> Let's use this to attract people. That's what you'd think he would do. Come on, you came to be a savior. This is a perfect gimmick. And often we look at what Jesus did when he healed people, and we think, what a great gimmick to attract people. There's a whole group of people who talk about signs and wonders, and they say, this is what God would do. Do these signs and wonders, and it attracts a lot of people, and that's a good thing. But Jesus apparently didn't know that. And he told the guy, look, I'm going to heal you, but don't tell anybody. And the guy told 
Anyway, and so all these people are coming crowding in. Like before, he's famous, he's attracting a lot of attention, but Jesus is going, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not trying to build something big. I'm trying to do something very small and personal and intimate with each person that I come in contact with. And the way I'll get that done is if I can touch people who will then go out and touch other people. That's the way I want to get this done. That's the way it's supposed to happen. And so what happened is Jesus couldn't stay in the city because he was so popular. So he headed out into the desert he headed out into the Tulis, and people had to come and find him. If they couldn't find him, then they didn't need him bad enough. They didn't want him. But the last thing he wanted to do is to build a huge structure or a great program. And the truth is, this is a picture of Jesus that it's really hard for us to understand even today. Because we associate greatness with size. We think that, man, if there's a bunch of people there, it must be great. So often, when there's a bunch of people there, I know of churches who, and don't think I'm talking about, I know what church he's talking about, because some of these are churches that go way back that aren't even around anymore, but churches where God began to do a great work, and you saw the Lord there, and it was amazing, and it began to build up, and somewhere along the line, the organization continued, but Jesus left out the back door, and all, and that power that you saw at one point, now the place would become just a parody of itself, just a, a souvenir of what used to be. Jesus goes, no, I don't want that. That's not what I'm trying to do. I didn't come here for attention. I came here to touch people one at a time. I came to be the personal savior of every person, and I want to offer everyone this intimate connection with me whereby you can represent me and you can draw people to me, not to your church. It's not a, it's not a club. It's not something that we base it based on how good it is. You know, we don't go, oh, boy, you know, today first service was kind of down. I bet God's really bummed. No, he's not. What God is pleased with is when one person reaches one person. That close connection that God wants to make, that's the big deal to him. And he calls us to come and to learn to go out and do that and to make those connections. But here in Mark, we definitely see someone who's deliberately avoiding attracting a bunch of attention to himself. Isn't that funny? When it's knowing him is eternal life, and yet you don't get to know him from a distance, you only get to know him close up. And that is such an important principle. It ought to drive everything that we do and everything that matters to us. And, you know, we come to church today, and, it, you know, it's great, but there's a bunch of people here, and, you know, I'm up here, and you're out there, and if the only connection that happens is that you sit out there, and you listen to what I have to say, and then you leave, and you ignore the people around you, and you ignore the people in your life who you could draw to the Lord, but instead, it's more like, oh, no, I go to church, kind of get all my religion done there. And you don't get involved, you don't participate, and you don't carry his love to those close, intimate connections that he wants you to make, then you miss the point. This isn't a show. Jesus is not just something to join up with and buy the t-shirt. He is someone who wants to know everyone personally. And that's what we see in the Gospel of Mark. 
in all of these snapshots, it's going to come up again and again. But there you have it, the first introductory picture of who Jesus is. Now, for many of us, we start looking at this and go, wow, this is different than I thought. This isn't quite what I thought. Well, I pray that as we spend the next weeks and the next, well, probably between now and Christmas in the Gospel of Mark, that you discover a lot of things about Jesus that you didn't know. And you recognize a lot of what he wants to do in your life that you didn't realize. That our thinking will be turned upside down where we've been led astray and, and we've bought into a view that's very worldly instead of one that's biblical. And that as we meet him personally and allow him to work in our lives, we will understand the great privilege of then being able to go out and reach others personally, to share his love and to, to be fishers of men and to reach out and make a difference by being servants, by just serving others because Jesus says to. And so there are a lot more snapshots in the album. Stick around every week. We'll see some more. It's an amazing picture of an amazing, amazing God, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us back right now at this time in our lives to this intimate picture of Jesus painted by a guy who can't sit still. But because of that, he says so much and so little, and he gives us the snapshots that changed his life. And Lord, may they change our life too. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to see you clearly, and especially to see you develop in our lives as we become more like you. Help us to represent you better than we do. Help us to be faithful to your word, to your character, to your heart. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've spent in your word. We look forward to more opportunities for this interesting guy, Mark, to tell us about you personally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. As always, after the service, there'll be people down here in the front who would love to pray with you for any reason. You know, there might be some of you today who are hearing this and